I'm going to start with a story and I'm going to end with an image. Um, I'm very happy to be invited here. I haven't thought hard about transferable skills for a bit. Um, I'm going to try and do a little bit of thinking now. Um, I'm going to kind of, in terms of how this sits with the other parts of the album, I'm going to talk really exclusively about science and engineering. Um, and about science graduates going into the workplace. I'm going to be even more precise than that because I'm going to talk about um, the unit I run at Imperial College, which is called the Science Communication Unit. And uh, what we do is train 50 graduate scientists every year to go into the media. I'll talk more in detail about that. But it so happens that actually, um, when I, what particularly kind of um, took me about Julie's invitation was that actually there was a stage in my life when I was absolutely a bona fide transferable skills teacher. That's what it is, they're all day long. And that came about incredibly because um, for many years I was a school teacher, I was a school science teacher here in London in various comprehensives in the 80s and, and 90s, and um, which I may talk a little bit about later. I went to Imperial because they had a panic attack as they often do at Imperial, which I think will ring bells with you. I remember very clearly the rector Ron Oxborough, now running um, Shell and BP and um, filling our atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Ron said, I'm told by industry that our students can't communicate. Um, and um, it became a kind of panic. And it's, this happens every so often at Imperial. Um, there are no girls here. We're all engineers. Um, um, when we go into the workplace, there's a problem. Now, if you're, if you're kind of level-headed about this, you might say, well, who says that? And let's look at that. But certainly at that point, was a kind of panic. Our students are brilliant. They're great engineers. They're great students. But they can't communicate when they go into industry. Um, they're not fit for purpose. So I and um, a very good teacher, um, much better than me, were employed for three years, actually, um, to teach transferable skills. And what it involved was, was you know, really kind of horrifying work, essentially, um, from four o'clock till six o'clock every Friday, or most days like that, teaching communication skills, writing skills, team skills, um, how to give a presentation. And these are to, to electrical engineers and science students of all different sorts. We just go around. And um, as a teacher, I could see that kind of experiential works, workshops on transferable skills were quite enjoyable. You know, they seemed to work because, because the only way you can teach team skills is to kind of do it a bit. And the only way to teach um, presentation skills is to do presentations and give feedback. And I think the only value of what I did those three years in truth was that they were quite nice sessions for, for these electrical engineers and um, chem and chemical engineers and so forth. But what kind of brought me up um, sharp and kind of got me out of that really was this story, which was, um, if you picture yourself the kind of graveyard slot on a kind of Friday afternoon, five o'clock in the Department of Electrical Engineering in February, when everybody else, in those days academics didn't work so hard, we all went home at four. Um, and there we were doing things, and, and, and this, this, this some student came up to me, and what the exercise involved was um, the student would give a talk, we'd video them, um, we'd look at the video, and we'd give feedback. It was back-breaking work and extremely time consuming. And that's really how I thought of it. Oh my God, I've got to do the presentation skills. 
student came up to me, who I knew a bit by now, a very um, attractive um, guy, very soft-spoken, very well-mannered, and, and um, to all intents and purposes, well, I was actually very articulate. And he said to me, um, Stephen, I don't think I can do this exercise, this video presentation. I can't talk to camera. So I said, fine, you know, that's all right, you can, you can sit it out. And um, maybe because we kind of got some kind of answers, he said, he said um, do you want to know why? Do you want to know why I don't want to do this? So I said, sure, go ahead. So I've got a stammer. So I said, um, I was kind of taken aback by this. Um, God, he's got a stammer and how awful, and I've got to think about this person now. And um, I was kind of contemplating this story and thinking, how did it fit in with what I was doing? And then he said, Stephen, do you, do you want to know why I've got a stammer? So at this point, I just kind of felt the walls falling away. And here I am at the eighth floor of the Eng, and this thing is happening. And he said, um, well, Stephen, I don't stammer because he, he told this in a completely non-weird way, just like, like a chap. He, he wasn't trying to, try to frighten me or something. He said, um, well, what happened was when I was three, I was in Heathrow Airport and with my parents. And we got lost. I got separated from my parents for about half an hour in Heathrow Airport. And I, from that moment, I had a stammer. And that was it. And that was the end. And what it, what it left me with was actually this so-called transferable skill that I was trying to teach how to talk in public, how to give a presentation, um, was immensely complex. Now, we've discussed already you know, why transferable skills, in a sense, aren't transferable. And there's a lot to be said about this person and his stammer and what was going on there. Um, and in fact, I never saw him again. But it stayed with me because it seemed to kind of symbolise a problem with this, which was that Ron Oxford decided we've got a problem, our students aren't appreciated by employers enough. But actually, when you do communication skills, especially perhaps, or writing, um, they're very emotionally laden. And learning always is. And, um, in a sense, and this is kind of what I hope what we can talk about later on, what are we at universities if we are not teachers and if we are not maintaining a safe space? And I suppose I felt a bit with this bloke that um, I'd sort of transgressed and that I'd somehow led us into a space that was not safe. And actually, um, even you know, just giving a talk, a five-minute talk, opens up all sorts of issues for all sorts of people. And... Um, Dealing with those issues is very time-consuming and kind of very different from whether someone's going to get a job in university. Now, you could argue, just to finish on this story, but actually this student, um, he, maybe he does need to, you know, maybe, maybe work does need to be done with him, with his stand. Maybe the stand will be a problem. Maybe something needs to happen. I just felt that person, that work was not going to be me. So that's my opening story, and that's what made me think transferable skills was... Um, Interesting, because we had great times with these classes, but in some sense, I felt at that point doomed, because it had been oversimplified. They weren't transferable. Um, you know, we, you, you, you yourself, Julian, have mentioned how you know, tacit knowledge, you take it into, you can give a speech in one arena, you can't give a talk in another arena. So I felt that I'd kind of um, dropped into a kind of a, an abyss really of complication, and I kind of stopped doing that teaching. And I moved into science communication. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the course I run um, and try to explain why it's relevant to why we're here this afternoon. So this is a large master's course at Imperial, about 50 students. Um, 
The reason they're doing science communication will resonate with all of you immediately, I'm sure, because um, they may have been influenced by Brian Cox or by Dave Dappenborough. Um, certainly, at certainly as undergraduates, they would have been doing um, student journalism. But the main thing, the main driver that's getting them from the degree to come and talk to us is they don't want to become research academics. They don't want to become research academics. They've decided that research is not for them. And the, 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 the reason they know that research is not for them is because they've probably done a research project in their second year and they've seen what it's like. They've seen what it's like. The supervisor's not there. The work is Mickey Mouse. This is by no means real science. And they know they're being hoodwinked. They know that actually they are not going to have an interesting time in scientific academic research. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you cannot have an interesting time in scientific, scientific research. It's just these particular students know it's not for them. But, and this is where the kind of anger comes in for them and why they come to us, um, you know, they've been studying science for years. And these are, these are Imperial College students. They're bright. You know, they, they've worked very hard. They've been through um, GCSE. They've been through the target culture. They've done very well in it. Um, they've gone through university too. They've been studying science for eight, nine years. And what's more, they still enjoy it to quite an extent. You know, a bad degree should get them a job. What's happened though, they don't want to go into research. They know that. They want to go into the media or policy or medical charities. Very few of them want to become Brian Cox. The work is in comms. You know, all my students get work. They're going to um, universities, press offices. They're going into drug companies, press offices. They are going into broadcast media, television, radio. They're going into all places like Welcome Collection, Welcome Trust, all the research um, funders. They all have communications people. Um, so, so they will get work. Um, it's just that they know that the science undergraduate degree will not get them into those jobs. They've been told you've got to have a science communication master's. It's not completely true. It's not completely true. You can go and get comms work as a science graduate, um, but actually you need really to do some thinking first. And this is the critical point of my talk, actually. Why do you need to think of it in order to become a good science communicator? And um, one way of putting this is very simple. Um, imagine you've got a friend, or, or, or at least an acquaintance, and that acquaintance is incredibly enthusiastic all the time. So you say, look, Jim, how are you? And Jim says, oh, it's great, fantastic. It's always, it's, I'm having a wonderful time. So you say, well, how's your day going to be? And Jim says, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be fantastic. And just goes on in a very optimistic frame of mind. No problem. No problem. Um, that kind of person very quickly becomes very boring, very dull, poor communicator. Interesting people tend to be those who are a bit ambivalent, who know life is complicated, who see, the two, who see two sides. Now, we all know that. What on earth has that got to do with science? Well, because actually, it is true, isn't it? If you look at Brian Cox, um, it does look as if life is just fantastic from the top of this mountain. Let's be enthusiastic about it and let's have more science. And um, that's why most of my students, when they talk about Brian Cox, they say, I don't want to be like Brian Cox. <laughs> you know, that's not where I'm heading. I have to work with absolutely. Well, he's well, a little bit more problematic, but uh, yeah, they're all the same. My students are not going to become they, those people. They're going into places where science is problematic. Um, and this is the issue. You don't learn about ambivalence when you do a science degree. You go and do a, 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 a BSc in molecular biology, you don't do any ethics. 
You go and do a, um, um, a degree on evolutionary biology. You don't do any history. You do nothing. You don't debate anything. I may be being a little unkind. It is true, but it does pop up from time to time. Sometimes lecture number 13 is the ethics lecture. But by that time, all the students... But in the main, in the main, correct me if I'm wrong, at Imperial, but everywhere else, the degree is exactly as it was as when I trained, when I did my degree in zoology 35 years ago. It's exactly the same. Now, um, of course, some of those students going from that degree into PhD studies and then into academia, all is well. You know, if they're really into their project and they haven't been tripped up by any of the vicissitudes of research life, that would be fine. But only 4% of Imperial College PhDs go into academia. 4%. 4% at Imperial into academia. And so when it comes to undergraduates, what are we talking about? You know, a vanishingly small proportion. So the problem then is that the degree is not fit for purpose for going into work. At Imperial, it kind of was when everyone went into the city. But nowadays, people are a bit ambivalent about the city. Is that really going to do the trick? So there's a big issue, therefore, about science training. Now, my students, we, we kind of hopped out of this. We have a master's degree. We just about break even. That's why I'm there. You know, every year, if we don't break even, I've got the accountancy officer saying, Stephen, your salary's under threat. It's like that. But essentially, we're kind of autonomous. And what we do, really, with the degree is try and show the students that it's not straightforward about science. One, is it true that science is revealed truth and is like a map which is getting more and more accurate and is gradually... No, it's not. History of science shows that the best scientific knowledge changes all the time. If you try to use the metaphor of we're getting closer to the truth, that's not much pop either, because if there is no final truth and there cannot be because you cannot prove anything, you can never get close to something that's infinitely far away. So, so scientific progress is very problematic too. Now, um, the reason I can talk a little bit about this is because actually my postgraduate work was in philosophy of science, so this is kind of close to my heart. Um, there are ways around this which are perfectly respectable. It's called pragmatism. But actually, science in the main works. You know, scientists do, scientists do stuff, they can intervene, they can make predictions, by, not by and large, but quite a lot of the time it works. But my God, it doesn't work all the time. It does not work all the time. And of course, where my students are going, because they're not going to become Brancos, they're going into drug companies, they're going into welcome collections, they're going into research places, they're going to Diabetes UK, um, they're going to work for all sorts of places where actually it's not clear that science is going to deliver. You know, we all woke up three days ago to find that they're building another nuclear power station at Hinkley. Can this be true? You know, do we not know that there's so many problematic issues about nuclear power, about the safety of these things? I mean, all my students find themselves working for places where there's controversy, where there's uncertainty. And um, that's why they get work, because actually, you know, you mentioned public engagement, and you, you yourself said, you know, 20 years ago we had this thing called the deficit model, um, the public understanding of science. In 1985, when all this kind of thing got going, um, people said, if only the public um, understood genetics, um, and if only scientists would talk more clearly and come out of the academy and use um, simple language, um, then they'll know more genetics and all be well. All research shows the more you know about something in science, the more you worry. The more you know about nuclear power, the more you know we need to stop thinking about this. 
the more you know about genetics, the more you know about you know genome editing, the more you think we need to stop. We need to think hard about this. Do I want embryonic stem cell um, genome research going on? You know, the more you know about it, the more you want to have a pause. Not stop it necessarily, but you want to kind of you don't want to just let them take control. So that's what we do um, on my course. That's the kind of um, thing, and that's why they have to have a degree in science communication. Because if you go and sort of do the Brian Cox thing in the real world, and do that in um, Diabetes UK, or Cancer Research UK, where actually patients are saying, no, I want to do this, not that, or where people are saying, I don't think, we, I don't think we're going to embrace that technology. Um, if you're not able to, to discuss and to listen, then you're not going to be able to communicate. And that's how my degree works. And um, of course, we don't just sit here in the course and discuss philosophy of science. I mean, in the main, 50 to 60% of the time, they're learning how to make a podcast, how to make a video, how to edit, how to write, how to do, how to organize digital content. They're learning serious technical skills, which in a sense are, you know, preeminently transferable. But interestingly, in terms of this um, afternoon, they're not transferable, actually, if these people don't have an idea in their head about what science, you know, how science fits into society. So even the ability to make a podcast um, or to write good digital content, even that arguably does not straightforwardly transfer to the BBC or to Windfall Films or to the Crick Institute. Um, but for sure, um, once you get into organising public meetings or doing public engagement, if you haven't thought about the frailty of science, you will not be able to communicate, just as my example, Jim, because Jim had never thought about his frailty, he was the most boring person on earth. Now, that's the course. Um, what about when they leave? What about when they actually go from the course onto, on, in, into the world of work? Well, I said that it's important for science communicators that they can use, they're familiar with ambivalence, that they can sort of say, yeah, well, I think it's good, but I can see the problem, I can see the problems. Um, and here's where another story comes up, comes, comes to mind. So my unit is called the Science Communication Unit. But it's amazing, it's amazing. Every time I put up a new sign, or I get a letter from the Vice-Chancellor, or anything like that, it doesn't say Science Communication Unit, it says Science Communications Unit. That little S creeps in, Science Communications. That's where Imperial College want to go. Not science communication, science communications. And a communication, we know what a communication is. It's a little gobbit which kind of goes out from here to there. Here's the information. I'm giving you a communication. Whereas science communication, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's aligning us with communication as a cultural resource, as a world, as a worldview, as something highly complex. We're the science communication unit, not the science communications unit. And so the other day I was kind of peeling off one of those little essays. And it, it, it's, it's archetypal to Imperial. No, Stephen, we want you to do science communications, like Brian. Send it out there. Tell them. Tell them plainly. Now, um, how can one argue against this idea that science communication is not simply get it out there? Um, well, the best way, and the way I do it, is to look at the word communication and, and go back to its roots. It comes from the word communicare, Latin. To share, to share, not to send. It means to share, and actually, that's obvious really when you think about. It. Think of all the other words which have got um, 
which which sound like communication. Commune, communism, communion, communalism, community. And um, communication theorists often talk about how um, you can think of communication in two ways, transmission or ritual. And my problem at Imperial is they all see me not as Brian Cox, but as some kind of transmission expert. I will teach my students how to write clearly and speak beautifully using simple language. And then they'll put it in, one of these, in, in, in a copper wire and it'll shoot down the room to the public um, with no noise, with no interference. That's transmission. But the other form of communication is rather like we are, you know, we're all communicating in this room uh, and there's quite a lot of talking, but essentially it's a bit more like a ritual. We know the SRHE, with this, this is a very nice place. It's kind of academic, but it's not scary academic. It's nice. It's a ritual. And that's how communication theorists often talk about it. But it's not about transmission. It's about um, um, a ritual, a space which you share. And within that, um, the communication is taking place. And uh, this fits also with the um, picture on the wall. And this is really how I want to end. So, um, it's, you know, it's, it's gone. Uh, <laughs> See what happens. Ah, oh, there it is. Uh, is it going? Here we are. Okay, so, um, you'll be able to recognise that this is a, a, it's just a book from my shelves, which I was passing by, but I want, I want to just mention this. Um, you'll recognise it's quite old. It, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of my era. We've been even before my era, but, it's, but uh, you know, when, when you get people my together about teaching, they tend to say things like, well, from 1975 to 1985, that was the golden era. That was, that was before the national curriculum, yeah. that was before targets, it was before details, it was before Kenneth Baker. And um, in those days, there was a lot of, I mean, let, let's be frank, there was a lot of curriculum development. And um, I looked, I was looking at this book, it's been kind of sitting there for 30 years, it was given to me by a kind of mentor of mine. And I looked at it, and lo and behold, it seemed to be talking about exactly what I wanted to talk about today, which is this, di this difference between transmission and ritual. He's got an even better word than ritual. Ritual is all right, we know what's going on there, but ritual can be very locked, it can be very rigid, it can be rather unpleasant, actually, even if it is kind of together. He's got a better, he's got a better um, dichotomy. It's between transmission and interpretation, or the interpretative mood which is much more alive, and humanities experts often use the word hermeneutics for this. And this is where communication is a kind of to and fro, endlessly changing, endlessly being reorganized and rethought and re-understood. And um, wonderfully, I mean, uh, the picture, you can't see it very well, but essentially you can see that um, it's, a kind of, it's a polemical picture. It's a polemical picture. The teacher's barely visible, he's at the back, kind of being consulted by Students are, and here are students kind of getting on a bit, apparently without need of any teacher at all, in working in groups, not being kind of told. And Barnes's dichotomy is between transmission and um, interpretative, and he just talks about that. And that's kind of what made me think about science as well. Because um, he says, you know, in a school, of course you've got different sorts of teachers, and they can all be wonderful, so we're not making it, we're not necessarily making a value judgment here. But he says, Quite often, when you look at a geography teacher, 
or a history teacher, um, or an English teacher, this is, this is the English mob, um, they are interpretative. They are interpretative, oracy, very different groups doing stuff together, and you think, yeah, it's true, and they, you know, if, if your children aren't allowed to talk, how can they kind of, you know, enjoy books? Um, and um, um, Barnes goes on to say, Joe could use tend to be like that. You also get very good transmission teachers. Transmission teachers who stand up at France and they've got something to say and they've got information to pass down the line. And they tend to be science teachers. And if you like, that's kind of where I'm at. So I'm a science educationist working in science communication, trying to move the transferable skills agenda for us from your transferable skill is to be a good communicator who can get the information out to the public to the kind of communicator where you're sharing with the public um, very widely applicable um, issues like do we want to edit the genome? Do we want nuclear power? Um, do we want to do this with stem cell toxicity? What should we do about air pollution? When you think about it, most science in the news is not about the Higgs boson. Most science in the news is stuff that's controversial. Statins. Statins. I mean, look, should we take them or should we not take them? Who can agree? The doctors can't agree. And um, therefore, the, the decisions have to be made. Decisions, you, know, you have to decide whether to take the statin or not for the rest of your life, in spite of that, but no one is certain. And this is very common with science in society. Who knows about nuclear power? Who knows about statins? Who knows about, we don't know, we don't know for sure. But meanwhile, policy must be made. And that's why science communicators need that sort of trans that, that skill of being able to debate, because stakes are high. You know, you know, this might this, this might be a difference between life and death. There is scientific knowledge. It's never going to be certain. But if we wait for certainty, well, they won't come. But even, but we, we, not, we can't wait ten years. And that's the point that actually, with science communication, um, you can't. As soon as you kind of think of it as um, getting good at talking about the science, making it accurate, easy to understand and clear, then um, you're kind of moving away from the real work, which is actually trying to understand how science fits in society. So just to finish here, from communication to curriculum is an extraordinarily potent um, title because you know the old-fashioned way of talking about science communication, you've got the curriculum, you've got the, now we communicate it. But actually, from my point of view, what we need to do is what happens when we, as science graduates, science experts, sit down and debate the issues, what comes up, then let's communicate it. Of course, for English teachers, you know, it was, um, it's not obvious now, you know, you walk past any school, they all seem to go on holiday because there's no sound. You can walk past the school in London with 1,200 students in there, there's no sound at all because no one's talking. Um, but in these days, it was very clear that you communicated, and then from that came your interest and love of English language and of books. And when you start talking about that, about to be more talk, and it was kind of iterative cycle. So, how does that all relate to what we've been discussing today? Well, simply that any kind of idea that skills can be transmitted, or that we should aim for that, I mean, as we've said multiply already, really doesn't fit. And I suppose my contribution would be it's true for science and engineering too. You know, it really is true. But this scientific knowledge um, um, is not to be seen as distinct from humanities or educational knowledge in that regard. It doesn't have certainty. People can't agree. 
um, and we need to be involved in deciding how it's kind of ritually accepted in society. I'll say no more. Questions? <laughs> <laughs>